Cade's 3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Thursday, October 21st, 2010, Neuromuscular Adaptation. There we go. Okay. I guess I should probably ask if there are any questions. Anybody has any anything that you need to go back over with the delayed onset muscle soreness, muscle injury? Any questions or concerns? Anything you didn't understand? Are there any dangers with working out a muscle group that's has been previously injured, like two days prior? And um, it depends. <laughs> the, um, if you look at studies that where you've designed these protocols to try to induce that soreness, induce the injury, um, there, there is that window of time. And I hope he talked about this in terms of the... the um, uh, that period of time where if you do the muscle injuring task, there is some window of time that may, up, may be up to six weeks where if you do that task again, the person either doesn't become sore or they don't become nearly as sore. Okay. Now, there have been some studies that have taken that and actually taken that soreness inducing activity down to doing it every day. And, and basically what happens is... Um, uh, there's a kind of a timeline with this soreness and this injury stuff. Did you talk about how we rate soreness? No. At all? Not really. Um, it's it's this delayed onset muscle soreness. It's basically a subjective feeling, right? It it hurts. Okay, and so you try to you come up with some different ways to figure out how much it hurts, and so there are some subjective scales um, where you literally you have a scale that's like zero to a hundred, and it, where it's no soreness and the worst soreness pain ever felt, and the person essentially um, makes a mark along that scale of of how how hard it, how much it hurts. Now with the soreness, does it hurt when you're just sitting around? Or does it, when does it typically hurt? When you're moving or you push on it, right? And so typically, when you're doing these types of ratings, you have the person do some type of activity while they're thinking about how much it hurts, and then they score their soreness, okay? So it is a subjective rating, um, but the, these scales are, are validated pretty well. They're pretty, they're pretty uh, uh, reproducible, okay? So then we look at days. So uh, this is zero... Okay, so over a week. So, you, so typically somebody starts out with no soreness, and you do some kind of, um, and, and what kind of muscle actions are mostly related to muscle injury and muscle soreness? Eccentric, Eccentric right? So the negatives. So we do these different types of tasks like downhill running, uh, the negatives and weightlifting and that kind of stuff that really induces a soreness. So when they do the task, they're not sore. Uh, typically you come back the second day, and your soreness is up here, uh, or the day after, so on day one. Uh, what about day two? Is it still pretty far up there, or is it gone? Still up there, okay. What about day three? Probably starting to come down some. Day four, coming down some. Usually, usually you get this kind of pattern with the soreness, so that by day five or six, the soreness is back down to unnoticeable. Is that common? What you guys, you know, when you do a hard workout, you get sore, four, five, six days later, you're fine again, right? Um, there are studies that show that if you do the task that induces the soreness, and then you have them come back and do it again the very next day, and they have them do it again the very next day, and the very next day after that, the soreness pattern goes like this. Same soreness pattern. Okay, um, so really, m most of what I've seen in terms of the research would indicate that uh, almost once you've once you've done the activity that uh, gives you the initial muscle injury and soreness, almost nothing that you do after this is going to affect that pattern of soreness. Whether you're whether you lay around and do nothing, whether you stretch, whether you swim, whether you um, 
uh, start taking NSAIDs, uh, whether you do ice, whether you do heat, whether you do uh, activity, almost nothing affects that soreness pattern. Okay. Now, one of the things I hope that he talked about, because it was in that, is if you start... And what are NSAIDs? Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Give me an example of one. Advil, okay, as a type of ibuprofen. Okay. Um, the thing with NSAIDs is you have to start using them beforehand, prophylactically. You got to start using them two or three days in advance of when you're going to start inducing the soreness. And if you do that, there there is some attenuation of the soreness, it doesn't get as high, okay? Now, you can, through exercise, injure muscles to the extent that the, the injury is fairly severe, and in fact, there is a condition or a situation that is dangerous, okay? And there, it's... Okay, rhabdomyolysis. You can injure these muscles to the extent that the breakdown products of the muscle is dumped into the blood and literally the protein content in the blood gets so high that it damages kidneys. Okay? There are some people that are very, very responsive to these types of protocols that we do to induce soreness. Um, they, you get... Well, so this is basically protein in urine, which then causes kidney damage. And it can lead to kidney failure, and it can lead to death if it's severe. Um, is, that, is that over a short period of time? It can happen in a uh, relatively short period of time. Okay. Um, you can tell people that are very susceptible to these type of soreness types of activities. If they're uh, a good example, I had a master's student um, that uh, he was interested in doing a research study that involved inducing muscle soreness. And what he was interested in is if we fed people carbohydrate, lots of carbohydrate in this uh, this couple of days, if it would help this process. And it turned out it didn't. Um, but like with most master students doing a research study or most graduate students, if you're going to do this research study, you need to practice your procedures. And guess who gets to be the first person to practice the procedures? Yeah. Not me. <laughs> the graduate student, yes. Um, so we came up with these, uh, you know, the um, negative uh, bench press, basically, where two people picked up the bar and he lowered it down, picked up the bar, he lowered it down. Uh, he did some uh, negatives with leg presses where people took the weight out and he slowly lowered it back. So we were using the biggest muscle groups in, our, in the body. And so we did it on a Friday afternoon and he shows up uh, in my office on Monday morning and he literally looked like the Michelin man. He was, he was all puffed up and swollen. His face was all round and swollen. And uh, because what goes along with this muscle soreness is edema right, or swelling, and as it turns out, he had, uh, he had dark urine, which was an indication of this protein and also damaged red blood cells that were, it was in his urine. And he was, uh, so after experiencing this, then he finally tells me, oh yeah, I've always been uh, uh, prone to getting really, really sore. He said one time we had this pull-up contest, and he, he said I walked around like this for you know four or five days because you know after because he did like thirty pull-ups and he hadn't done them for a while and he, and he you know so there are some people that are ex very susceptible to kind of extreme muscle injury and uh, so it can be it literally can be dangerous okay um, but having said that a lot of people if they do some kind of muscle injuring activity that's fairly modest. They get the soreness, and then you can do an even more extreme bout later, and it doesn't get any worse. Okay, so there's a pretty rapid adaptation. Uh, but your question about the time frame, was it literally, it, 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 and one of the things Ryan should have talked about, hopefully, was with this muscle injury, there's an immediate response. 
Okay, there's an immediate response. It literally starts within hours. Okay, and you actually get the mechanical damage and disruption of those, of those muscle cells. And then there's a delayed response. And this is where you start to get that inflammatory response. Okay, the inflammatory response that starts to occur over several days. So there is an immediate response. And then at least within the first day or two, it seems to get worse because of this inflammatory response. And then there's a recovery period. Okay. All right, so the fill in some of the gaps going to make sense with this stuff. Just to clarify with the inset, it can reduce muscle soreness, but it doesn't allow for complete muscle recovery. Is that correct? Yeah, there, and there, there's actually some controversy about this because um, the thing with the NSAIDs is that you know, if you start using them two or three days in advance, the, the things that we see, you, you don't see the signs of muscle injury being less. What you, what, you, what you see is, or what you feel is, a decrease in the soreness that occurs. Uh, and it mainly, because it, it's anti-inflammatory, so it helps reduce this inflammatory response. There is a pretty good sized group of folks that, that study this stuff that think, even though it makes us feel a little bit better, we probably shouldn't be messing with the inflammatory response because it's probably a natural response to the injury and then the recovery process. Okay, So um, there is some concern that, that, that that's an issue, that it may actually impair the recovery process even though it makes you feel better. The jury's very much out on that one right now. That's kind of a theory or an idea that some people are working on, but juries still weigh out on that one. Okay? Uh, and, and it's fairly clear that muscle injury to muscle fibers and muscle cells is part of normal daily activity. And our muscle cells will uh, adapt if the injury is not too great, those muscle cells will uh, uh, recover and adapt. Okay? Uh, and this is a, a real quick example. Back in the 70s and early 80s, a lot of this work started, research started to get done, and people were concerned about eccentric action and the muscle injury and the soreness occurred. So a bunch of different types of strength training equipment came out that some of it was hydraulic, some of it was, um, uh, what was the other stuff? It had like electromechanical motors in there that basically allowed you to do the positive, but then not the negative. So like the hydraulic stuff, what was that, Kaiser, um, some other types, but it allowed you to do, for example, with the bench press, when you pushed against it, you did the positive, but then it just returned back to normal passively. So you didn't have to lower, it wasn't a weight, it was a hydraulic uh, you know, piston you were pushing against. So you did just the positive. Well, that worked great, so people could work out and not get sore. The problem is, as the next decade went along, they found out that people didn't gain as much strength. And when they started to do research where you actually included the negative part of the lift back into the weight training, they found out that people's strength gains were higher. Okay? So it's clearly that, you know, that, that stimulus to the muscle is important uh, for strength gain. So it's all kind of connected. Okay. Anything else on? It's 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 interesting stuff. It's be careful if people ask you to participate in one of these studies. <laughs> they're they're uh, they're soreness studies, so you're going to be sore. All right. So let's move on, uh, and actually this actually kind of uh, uh, continues this theme because it talks about muscle adaptation. And you'll see this term myoplasticity. Okay, this term plasticity. And what that really means is sort of a semi-permanent change. It's, it's not a rapid change uh, either for positive or negative. 
and it's not a permanent change, but it's a change that can be made that is uh, relatively long-lasting. Uh, as we'll look at when we do the cardiovascular system, you can do some things and change your VO2 max. Uh, let's say if you train and increase your VO2 max, if you get sick and lie in bed for a week or so, you can see uh, measurable declines in your VO2 max in just a week. Okay? The changes with muscle are a little more slow. They're slower to gain those changes and they're more slowly lost uh, when that stimulus is removed. But anyway, just like with our other systems, our skeletal muscle is going to adapt to some kind of uh, regular chronic uh, stimulus. Now, if that uh, stimulus is an overload stimulus, okay, we overload it in some fashion, that there's going to be some sort of positive adaptation, but we get the reverse as well, that if there's an inactivity, there is an atrophy that is associated with skeletal muscle, and there's a specific term um, called sarcopenia, and it is a loss of muscle tissue. It is mostly associated with lack of activity, and it is very commonly seen in uh, individuals as they age. Okay, particularly in industrialized societies and in societies where there's a lot of physical inactivity, this is a uh, big concern, this sarcopenia. All right, so it's uh, skeletal muscle like other systems. It's sort of that use it or lose it. You know, if you're inactive, you're going to see atrophy of skeletal muscle. If you're active and stimulated in, a, in an appropriate way, you'll see positive adaptation. All right. Um, Sedentary lifestyle, at least in this country and other industrialized, is probably the main reason for seeing atrophy or loss of skeletal muscle. Um, there is some loss that's due to aging, okay, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, if anybody's ever like broken a bone, broken your arm, and had a cast put on, okay, what does your arm look like after they take the cast off finally? It's like it's a toothpick, yeah, it's like this big around. And, and they literally, in order to study, atrophy and, and then the response, they'll do studies where they do casting to immobilize that limb uh, and look at the loss of skeletal muscle. Okay, So there, there are some, some uh, inactivity in that sense uh, where you lose muscle. One of the things that's been really interesting and, and uh, there's been a huge amount of research related to space travel because of going into space where there is uh, very minimal gravity, you lose the chronic stimulus of gravity, uh, of having to overcome the effects of gravity to, you know, just to walk around every day. And so what happens is astronauts, when they come back from uh, space travel, and in particular in staying for longer periods of time on the space station, um, they they're, uh, have significant losses in both bone and muscle. So they have to do some interventions to try to um, slow down this loss. Because okay? one of the things, of course, that's been kind of shelved with the, the way the economy is, but there's, a, uh, there's been a long-term plan by NASA to try to send, a, send manned spacecraft to Mars. And in that case, they're talking about a three-year trip. Okay? It would take them basically a year to get there and a year to get back. And they figure if you're going to make that long of a trip, you might as well stay longer than a weekend. So, so stay there a year. But so these astronauts would be exposed to three years worth of microgravity. And there's some concern that when they get back that they will have uh, severely depleted both bone density and also uh, muscle tissue. And so there are some interventions to try to uh, help these athletes uh, or these astronauts um, uh, maintain skeletal and bone integrity. All right, well, we know that if we do this regular chronic kind of um, stimulus through some type of uh, strength training, and it can come in a variety of different forms. You know, a lot of people, you know, use the term resistance training or um, weightlifting, you know, but not all weightlifting is, or not all activities related to strength is lifting weight, I guess. You could be doing the activity against some kind of elastic resistance or something else. So I, I just like to use the term strength training. Uh, 
in terms of responses, we know that people get stronger, right? That muscle or that muscle group can produce more force and can therefore lift more weight or, or um, uh, do that activity um, in a more effective manner. Uh, this is primarily because of an increase in muscle size. There's a direct correlation between um, cross-sectional area and force. How much force this muscle cell or this muscle can produce. So if the muscle is this big in cross-sectional area compared to later when it's this big, you've got a lot more contractile protein in here, bigger cross-sectional area, and you can produce more force. And so as a result of this stimulus, muscles get bigger and they can produce more force. We, we literally increase the amount of both contractile proteins, and our two contractile proteins are actinomyosin, and also the regulatory proteins that go along with it, tropomyosin, troponin, okay? Muscles are attached to bones uh, by connective tissue, by ligaments, um, and so uh, the tendons that are stressed that are uh, connected by, the muscles are connected to the bones by tendons. So those are put under stress as well because when these muscles produce force, they transmit that force to the bone through the tendon. And so that uh, puts stress on those tendons. They increase both in size and in their tensile strength. What does that term tensile? The amount of tension, it's the resistance to being pulled apart. Okay. The resistance, so the ligaments will, uh, uh, and tendons will adapt as well. Because we put uh, a stress on bones and on bones around some joints, the ligaments will adapt as well. Okay? Both they increase in size and in their tensile strength, so they can uh, withstand the amount of force that's being produced by muscle. Muscles are attached to bones. And so when they generate tension or force and they, they, they pull on those bones, they stimulate those bones, and that increases bone mineral content. And you'll also see BMD, which is bone mineral density. Okay, Our bones can become more dense. Uh, because these types of activities are largely fueled by our anaerobic energy systems, we will see those biochemical changes as well. Increase in creatine kinase activity, increase in our glycolytic enzyme activity. Um, we see an increase in our fuel source, ATP and creatine phosphate. That's an increase in total content in the muscle. We don't really increase the concentration much. The total content, the total amount of ATP, and the total amount of creatine phosphate goes up mostly because the total muscle size is bigger. Okay? Total muscle size is bigger. So, not concentration. Now, interestingly, we also get some cardiovascular adaptations as a result of regular strength training, okay? Um, mainly because there is what's referred to as a pressure overload, okay? Um, picture, you've got some muscles like this, and over here you've got the heart, and you've got the aorta, And you've got a blood vessel that runs down through here like this. Okay, so you got this blood in the aorta. The heart generates force to push this blood out into the. Or you got uh, blood in the left ventricle. Left ventricle generates force to push blood out into here. So it's trying to circulate this blood. If you contract these muscles, they tend to squeeze on these blood vessels like this. Okay? And what that does is essentially pinches these blood vessels. 
It's kind of like a garden hose. So if you pinch the garden hose, what happens to the pressure in the hose back up here? It goes up. Okay? So this can happen with as little as 50% of the maximum contraction ability. Okay? With as little as 50%. You contract those muscles, and not only it's related to not only the uh, percent of maximum, but also in the duration of the contraction. The longer you hold it, the longer this happens. Okay? All right, so let's picture this. You're contracting these muscles. Your heart is trying to push, let's do it on this side. Your heart is trying to push blood through the aorta down through these blood vessels. If they're pinched off, the pressure goes up. So that pressure backs up to the heart. So what does the heart have to do in order to try to keep blood moving? It has to generate more force, right? So it generates even more force. And then if it's generating more force, what's happening to the pressure in here? It's going up. And if these blood vessels are still being clamped by those muscles, the heart's going to generate even more force to try to push blood through the blood vessels. And what happens to the pressure? Keeps going up. Goes up even further. Here are the results of two studies that looked at blood pressure during weightlifting exercises. This first one, they had people doing a bench press, but they had them lifting a weight that was equivalent to 50% of their one repetition maximum. So let's say they put them on the bench press, or the chest press machine. They were able to lift uh, 150 pounds maximum one time. So they put them back on the device at 75 pounds, 50%. So how hard is that uh, to, to work out with? That's not very hard at all. Okay. What's normal resting blood pressure? 120 over 80. Here was the blood pressure during the bench press lift, 230 over 150. And that's 50% of the 1RM. Okay? Now, here's a study where they took experienced weightlifters and they had them do a maximal effort leg press. using. So you're using the biggest muscle groups in your body maximal effort leg press, and the resulting blood pressure average among the group of subjects was 350 over 280. Big spike in blood pressure. Okay? But how long did that spike in blood pressure last? Seconds, right? So it's while you're pushing against and straining against the big lift, blood pressure goes way up, but as soon as you let the weight down, blood pressure comes down again. So yes, these are huge increases in blood pressure, but they're fairly transient. They, they, go, they, they come and go pretty quickly. Nonetheless, this is a big pressure overload because it generates a lot of pressure in here that the, that the left ventricle is trying to overcome. So how do you think the left ventricle, what's the left ventricle made out of? Cardiac muscle, right? So it's a muscle. So if you expose the left ventricle to these big pressures and are asking it to generate more force, what's likely, what kind of adaptation do you think we'll have with the left ventricle? It's going to hypertrophy. It's going to get bigger. Okay? And as it turns out, what happens is if you took the left ventricle and you cut it in cross-section, it would look kind of like this, where you've got this uh, interior chamber. So that's the open part of the chamber in the ventricle. And then this outside part is the wall. Okay? Well, so this will hypertrophy. And I'm going to draw this out of scale, but to make the point, what happens is that muscle hypertrophies and you get a big increase in wall thickness okay, of the ventricles. So if you look at research studies that have looked at uh, that have done an analysis of uh, myocardial size, weight, and shape of experienced weightlifters, particularly, and these are folks who have lifted a lot of weight for long periods of time, like Olympic lifters. And what happens is they have much thicker myocardial walls than people who are non-lifters. Okay? We'll talk about a different type of hypertrophy with endurance athletes um, a little bit down the road, but 
pressure overload, high pressures, makes the ventricle work a lot harder and it results in a big increase in wall thickness. Okay? So strength training can result in cardiovascular adaptations as well as those neuromuscular adaptations. Does that affect the size of the interior chamber? Um, not much. Because one of the things that you see with strength training activities, uh, it, because it does not have a large aerobic demand, I mean, you obviously do get some increase in cardiac output, but you don't get nearly the same amount of increase in cardiac output as you do with aerobic exercise training. So the, the other type of overload that you see is volume overload. So when you, when you run, your cardiac output goes up from 5 liters a minute to maybe 20 liters a minute. So now the ventricle is seeing four or five times the amount of blood, so it fills with more blood, so it's a volume overload, and in that case, it's the chamber size that gets a lot bigger. Okay? With strength training, you do get an increase in cardiac output, but not nearly that, that, uh, to that degree. So it's more of a pressure overload, more of a wall thickness thing than it is a chamber size thing. Okay? Would that be maximizing the uh, it pro the, the more, uh, the, the greater the intensity of the exercise and the longer you hold that exercise, the more it's going to clamp these and have a bigger effect here. So, yes, high intensity, isometric, because if you think about a, like a, a near maximum leg press, it... Uh, what does that look like in terms of movement uh, of the leg press? Is it, is it a, uh, a constant rate of movement out and back if you're doing a maximal effort lift? What happens? You start pushing it, so it's, it's nearly isometric, okay? And so the more intense and the longer you hold that, the greater the pressure and the greater the, the um, uh, volume or the pressure overload. Okay. Yes. Um, describe that for me a little bit more, because there's a couple of things. It can be. It's probably not related to this. Uh, there, there's a there's a few things uh, that are that are you know, heart-related things that you got to be careful about with sports. Um, uh, be because there, there are some sudden death syndromes that seem to be mostly electrically related. Um, there are some things that happen, particularly with endurance exercise training, that um, may result in some sort of abnormal, what would appear to be abnormal readings. Um, you, you can get hypertrophy of the heart that on an EKG, um, let me just back up. There are, um, it's one that, well, it's kind of jumping forward into the cardiovascular section, but it's one of the interesting things about physiology. The, um, um, let, me just, let me put a blank slide in here to, I got something to write on. Go there. Okay. So let's take blood pressure as an example. I'll get to or, uh, hypertrophy in a second, but let's take blood pressure. All right. Um, we know that blood pressure can get too high, right? And so, what's the term we use for that? Hypertension. We know that normal resting blood pressure is 120 over 80. Okay, and that's that kind of gross average. Okay, we know everybody's is not 120 over 80 at rest. That's kind of that gross average. So let's look back here, and here we've got a blood pressure of 350 over 280. Okay, so we've got. 350 over 280. Will we call that hypertension? Yeah. Um, because that's blood pressure that's well above normal. 
The thing, though, is so, that, so then strength training is bad for us because it causes hypertension, right? So we shouldn't do it. But it causes hypertension. Okay. So, and actually, the studies both with aerobic training and with strength training show uh, in the recovery period, after you've recovered from exercise, your blood pressure, your resting blood pressure is actually lower. Okay? So, there's, there's a... Um, uh, we know hypertension is a bad thing, but it's kind of a different type of hypertension. Uh, it's the chronic hypertension where, you know, say you, you're at, you know, 180, uh, maybe your diastolic's 110 or more, and it's like that every minute of every hour of every day. It's chronic all the time. So there, there is some um, bad type of hypertension, and there's some type of hypertension that's okay because it actually leads to positive change. And so you get the same thing with uh, myocardial hypertrophy. Um, there is a type, there are, there are several types of myocardial hypertrophy that are positive adaptations. This kind of increase in wall thickness in response to strength training is a positive adaptation. The kind of hypertrophy that you see with endurance exercise um, is a positive adaptation. Okay? But it still shows up on an EKG because there is more muscle tissue there, it shows up like it's hypertrophy. There is a type of hypertrophy that is pathological. If you've got somebody, and those of you who are going into clinical exercise physiology will run into patients like this. If you have somebody who has pulmonary hypertension, that is, in their pulmonary circulation, the blood pressure is too high. So what happens then is now the right side of the heart has to work harder to force blood through the pulmonary circulation. And if the right side of the heart has to work harder to do that, it's got to do it every beat, every minute, every hour, every day, chronically over and over and over again. And so that what happens then is you get this myocardial hypertrophy, but it is pathological. It's related to pulmonary and or cardiovascular disease. So that's kind of what can happen is you get some athletes that based on their positive response to training, they actually get some things, for example, on their EKG that look like they're not right. Okay? So that's, that's basically what happens. Now, there are plenty of athletes that actually on their EKG that there are things that are not right because there's something that's not right. And um, uh, there are and it's pretty controversial because there's some, there's some, have uh, you heard of like the, the, the um, pre-screening echocardiograms that there some places are suggesting to kind of screen for some of the structural problems that may result in uh, sudden athlete death. So there, there are some screening type things to, that uh, are being suggested, but they're not to try to catch those instances where, where, people might be susceptible to major cardiovascular problems when they exercise. Okay. All right, so we've already talked about this neurological training. So we know when we start strength training that there's an, a, a fairly rapid increase in strength. That seems to be a result for novices of them adapting quickly to uh, uh, training their neurological system to recruit motor units more effectively. No question, though, the long-term benefit is an increase in this cross-sectional area of the muscle. Okay? The muscle literally gets bigger, and we add more contractile protein. You get more actinomyosin, you can make more cross-bridges, you can produce more force. That's, that's essentially how it works. Okay, so here's our increase in strength. Okay, we can get a fairly rapid increase. It's probably neurological. We get a uh, continued increase in strength. At some point, people's ability to increase their muscular strength plateaus at some genetic le limit. There are probably some manipulations that we can do. Um, some may be appropriate, some may be not so appropriate. 
that uh, we might do to try to enhance this process. Here's this neurological adaptation down here, happens quickly and then plateaus. The hypertrophy takes longer to get going, and, but is responsible for more of the late stage increase in strength. Okay, muscles get bigger. All right, well, how do they do that? All right, this, this is a, uh, okay, if we look at a muscle fiber, or, or if, if we look at a muscle in cross-section, essentially what happens is after strength training, that muscle is bigger. Okay, it has a bigger cross-sectional area, bigger diameter, okay, that muscle is bigger. So there's been a huge amount of research looking at how this happens. How do these muscles get bigger? And there's, there's a couple of different possibilities. So here's our muscle, and then just to simplify it, we've got a muscle, and when we start, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six muscle cells, or six muscle fibers, okay? One way this muscle could get bigger is if we increase the number the number of muscle cells. So notice these muscle cells are all the same size, but now we've got a whole bunch more of them. Okay? So in, in essence, the body would be stimulated to grow more muscle cells or more muscle fibers. This is a concept or an idea called hyperplasia. The other idea is hypertrophy, where we keep the same number of muscle cells, but now these individual muscle cells are bigger. And you can kind of read through the, the, the literature over time, and it's, uh, people have done some fascinating studies to try to figure out uh, how muscles get bigger. Um, and I find it pretty interesting. There were two researchers in exercise physiology in particular that were really on both sides, uh, on either side of this argument, hypertrophy versus hyperplasia. And over about a 20-year period of time, you can read studies that each of them put out that sort of counteract the, the other's uh, ideas. The... Um, um, This researcher down here, his name is Gagne, and he was at Southwest Texas Medical Center. And he was convinced that um, uh, at least some degree of increase in muscle size was due to an increase in muscle fiber number. And so in order to figure this out, he taught cats how to do curls. He taught, cat, he taught cats how to do curls. So, so basically what happened was, in, in order to do this, accurately. You know, you can do muscle biopsies, but you know, in, a, in, the, in the context of a whole muscle, a muscle biopsy only gives you a little tiny piece of muscle. Um, and so you can, you can take a piece of muscle and you can cut it in cross-section. You can look and see whether or not, you know, the fibers are bigger or smaller. But you may see something small that looks like this, and you think that's maybe a small new fiber, but it might just be you've gotten the muscle biopsy down at this little cut right there where the smaller tapered into the muscle, okay? So really the only way to do this accurately is to actually count muscle fibers. So in order to do that, you typically, uh, human subjects aren't usually willing to give up entire muscles uh, so that you can count the fibers. So these are done a lot of times with animal models. So this guy uh, uh, trained cats. Uh, and. And I used a term on the exam last time, operant conditioning. How many of you had psychology? Okay, operant conditioning. Basically what he did is he constructed this device where um, uh, the cat learned that if it put its paw in this uh, uh, device and it could grab onto this, this uh, bar and pull on it, it would drop a food reward. Okay, Reach in there, grab it, pull on it, drops a food reward. So... Pretty soon it learns, you know, it learns, and so then you reduce the, you, you increase the number of times it has to pull on it to get the food reward, okay? So now it's doing more, it's doing reps, okay? So then once it gets used to that, you know, and you get the cat really hooked on something good, you know, so then what you do is you turn up the tension on the bar, so now that it takes more force to pull on the bar. And you also construct the device so the cat can only get the right paw in there and not the left one. 
Okay? So now what you have is you've got one arm that's done the strength training, and you've got the other arm that hasn't, and so you can compare one arm, uh, a strength trained arm, against the other. So when he did that, he found some evidence that there were more, there was an increase in number, okay, increased number of muscle fibers, okay, some evidence of hyperplasia. So, in, in counter to this, Phil Galnick, who was at Washington State University, did a research study where he taught rats how to do squats. Rats? Rats. Yeah, lab rats. Wow. Not, not the kind you find in your dorm, you know, the lab rats. Yeah. So, so what he did was he, he built a little plexiglass tube that the food reward was kind of up at the top of the tube. And uh, down at the bottom of the tube there was an opening and there was a, a kind of a yoke device where the rat could stick its head in the opening in the tube, look up and see the food reward, had to climb in the tube where the yoke was around its neck, and then it had to stand up to get to the food. Okay? So then with the little yoke thing on it, what he would do is start increasing the weight over time so the rats had to do squats against resistance to get to the food. Okay. Yeah, they didn't have a, yeah, well, in this case what they did, uh, you didn't have a control leg, so what would you do for your control? You had rats that, that maybe got in the tube and got to the food reward, but they didn't have any resistance, okay? So you had, you had your, your uh, Olympic squat rats and your control rats, okay? So you, you compare, and what he found overall that the predominant evidence was these muscle cells got bigger, okay? That there, were, there was not an increase in muscle, so there was no change in number, but there was a big change in size, okay? So hypertrophy. Now, um, if, you, if you're really interested in this stuff and you really get into reading the literature, the research studies, there are a number of animal models that do give some indication that there may be some stimulus for growing new muscle cells. Okay? So in animals, in animals, maybe. Okay? Maybe. But in humans, there's very little evidence of that. So in humans, at least, we think the major mechanism for muscles getting bigger and muscles getting stronger is individual muscle cells getting bigger, hypertrophy. Okay? So how does this happen? How are we doing on time? This is the one that's in your PowerPoint. I, this one's too simple. I don't really like this one. Uh, I put a new one in there. I loaded it up a little while ago, so don't stress it's on there. But let's just look at this. This one's too complicated, so I'm going to try to draw a, uh, a simpler version of this. But let's just use this one as our example. Okay. Um, so this target cell up here that this is talking about is going to be our muscle cell. Okay. And here is our important element because it's our target gene. So within a cell, what do I, what, what's a gene? What is that? It's pretty much a code for a characteristic. Pretty much a code for a characteristic. It is a section of the DNA in the chromosome, in the nucleus of, the, of a cell, that is a code for some process or something within that cell. Okay? So in this case, we would be looking at a gene... That would control the process for protein synthesis and specifically this would be a, a code or the directions or the blueprint, if you will, for the contractile proteins in a muscle cell. Okay? Now, got a couple of important elements over here. First of all, we've got some influence of hormones. Do hormones influence our ability to synthesize muscle cells? Or mu synthesize muscle? Yes. 
Yes. Okay. So there's an influence of hormones here. Okay. So the hormonal status of this individual is important. And then this, it's a little bit hard to see, but this right here, this LRE, is a load responsive element, or this is the area that responds to the muscle producing force. Okay? So load or muscle force. If you just have high concentrations of testosterone, is that going to make you synthesize lots of muscle? Not necessarily. Okay? There's another, there's this load receptive or load responsive element that this is what responds to the actual stimulus of you asking your muscles to produce more force. Okay? So, what these do is these elements combine and they signal this target gene. This starts the process of protein synthesis. Okay? There is transcription and translation, and it results in the synthesis of your protein down here. Okay, now do people remember or understand the process of the transcription and translation? Transcription, this is sort of like the blueprint. Okay, think about it like a, it li this is literally like construction. It's like a construction project, except you're constructing proteins in cells instead of constructing a building. If you want to build a building, uh, who does the design for the building? Architect. architect. Okay. So back here you've got an architect. An architect does a drawing. And when the architect finishes uh, his or her drawing of the building, uh, do they give their only copy of the drawing to the guys to build, the people to build the building? No. no. They're always going to keep an original, right? So that's our... That's our target gene, is the original. So they're going to make copies of the blueprint of the building, and that is transcription. So that's what transcription is. It's You take the gene, you make a copy of it that you can use to then go out and do the project. Okay? So that's transcription. And the copy of the gene is our... RNA. Okay, that's the cop. Those are the blueprint copies. Now, who actually builds the building? All right, well, let me let me back up. Who's the one who ensures that the building gets built? The contractor. So you've got somebody, a contractor or a supervisor or something like that. Okay, that takes the blueprints and takes it to the construction site and then who actually builds the building? Okay, the construction workers, right? So this is our ribosomes. Okay, so that's the, that's the construction site within the cell where these proteins are actually built. So there's an original plan, which is the DNA in the gene. A blueprint, copies of that plan are made, which is the process of transcription. And the copy is the RNA. Then the copy is taken and the workers are told how to build what's on the plan. And that's what translation is. Okay? So you've got transcription and translation. Transcription is making a copy of the blueprints. Translation is taking the blueprints and telling the construction workers exactly how the thing is built. Okay? And then the process itself is this protein synthesis is done in ribosomes in these muscle cells. Okay? So when these muscles are cells are stimulated in a specific fashion, it sets up this whole process that you will see the term that's called gene expression. Okay, you will see this term called gene expression because these genes 
are stimulated to do their thing. And they're, they're targeted to uh, build very specific proteins. So if somebody has a high percentage of fast twitch muscle fiber, then those individual muscle cells are going to produce the kind of myosin that is specific to fast twitch muscle cells. It'll produce lots of force very quickly. Okay? If this person is mostly slow twitch, that'll produce the specific types of myosin and proteins that are specific to slow twitch muscle cells. Okay? So this process is, is very specific to the, the individual types of proteins that are coded for in these genes. Okay? So it's the interaction of both hormonal status, but also the application of that load, that stimulus, that triggers this whole process for these genes to start the process of constructing more protein. Okay. Now, it can go the other way as well. Uh, we, we see this a lot with uh, declines in physical activity. Which we particularly see with aging. Um, people lose strength. And um, there, there's a certain term that's called specific isometric tension. And it's a way of normalizing the amount of force to the amount of cross-sectional area. And what happens is that doesn't really change much. So let's think about that. How much force you can produce for how much cross-sectional area there is. So whatever muscle is there still produces quantitatively about the same amount of force for how much muscle is there. So the loss in force, the loss in strength, is mostly due to a loss in muscle mass. Okay? The, the muscle tissue itself is okay, but you can't produce as much force, mostly because the, there's not as much muscle mass. Okay? We lose muscle, and that's this term, sarcopenia. Um, in particular, as people age, if we look at muscle fiber types, the muscle fiber types that atrophy the most are type 2's. Okay, which type are those? Fast twitch. Why would you lose more fast twitch than slow twitch muscle mass? Pardon? You're not always using it. As you get older, not only are you less active overall, what type of activities are you probably less active at? High intensity. High intensity. Okay. So there is a greater atrophy of type 2 or fast twitch fiber, again probably related to inactivity. You, you, you may have somebody who stays active and, and walks or runs, but they don't sprint or lift weights. They're not using the type 2s as much, so those, those atrophy more. There is some neuromuscular remodeling, and it seems like there's a coalescence of, of um, uh, fiber types to, to nerve, and so you get sort of a, a loss of functional motor uh, neurons, and these motor units increase in size. Okay, so this, this affects coordination of movement. Okay, a lot of times when you see older adults, um, uh, even if they're still active, um, a lot of times their, their movement uh, activities, they're, they're not as coordinated. Okay. Um, okay, muscle fiber type distribution as a percentage probably doesn't change. Still probably have the same percentage of fast twitch and slow twitch, but your fast twitch are probably going to atrophy more. Okay, probably same percentage, but they're going to atrophy more. Uh, capillary density and capillary to fiber ratio goes down, so blood supply is not as good to muscle. Oxidative capacity goes down. Our uh, other biochemical characteristics go down. Um, we might be more susceptible to this exercise-induced injury or damage. Seemingly about the only thing that goes up is insulin resistance, which is not good for us. 
Okay. The, the interesting thing, though, is the response of muscle after it has atrophied and the response of muscle even if it's aged muscle. Uh, this is a graph of the results of a research study where they did strength training. They, they literally, these, these um, researchers, went to a nursing home and recruited people who lived in the nursing home and their average age was 90. Okay, average age of 90. Put them on a strength training program, not unsimilar to what other people might pursue. Um, in this case, it was, um, these are the results of the, the leg strength. So they did knee extension and knee curls, right, for quadriceps and hamstrings. Look at the increase in strength over, here's 12 weeks of training, um, and this is kilograms. Their hamstrings, knee flexors, basically went from 10 kilograms to 20 kilograms. What percentage increase in strength is that? Double. That's 100%. From 10 to 20, it's a 100% increase in strength. Okay? Knee extensors went from 20 to 40, so these are our quads. Okay, so from 20 to 40, 100% increase in strength in 90-year-olds. One of the cool things about this study was um, they, they did some interesting functional tasks where there's one test that you do where you literally have people sit in a chair, you tell them to stand up, and you time how long it takes them to stand up. And, you know, in 90-year-olds, that <laughs> could be a while, right? Well, what they found is there was a significant decrease in the amount of time it took them to stand up. Um, People who were using uh, walking assistive devices like walkers or canes. People who had to use walkers were able to actually use canes. People who had to use canes were able to walk unassisted. And so a lot of times this disability is not due to some kind of um, uh, 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 biomechanical problem or some kind of orthopedic problem. It's actually due to strength. And what they found was when they were able to improve their leg strength, they were able to improve their ambulation, their, their ability to get around. Um, if you hadn't looked at the PowerPoint before, just looking at this guy from the neck down, uh, what would you guess his age to be? 40. That would actually be a pretty good 40-year-old. That, that, that was a guy at age 67. Wow. Okay, at age 67. Uh, here he is again at 79, okay, almost 80 years old. Okay, so um, it's probably not so much the age of the muscle as it is the stimulus, the, 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 the strength training, the activity that you expose the muscle to. Okay, so particularly the, the um, oh, this, this, this guy's great. This guy at age 80 ran 100 meters in 14 seconds, okay, master's athlete. Um, so it's probably not a condition of the age of the muscle, it's the activity and the stimulus that you expose the muscle to, okay. Uh, older muscle is nearly as capable as younger muscle in terms of increasing strength and uh, to some degree hypertrophy. Okay. Um, questions on muscle adaptation. So as you get older, you're going to automatically start losing muscle mass. So does that matter whether you work out or not? If you work out, it you to slow the degradation? Yeah, there, there are some things that do decline with aging even if you stay active. Um, but I'll take issue with the word that's used automatically because I don't think people will automatically lose muscle. Hang on, guys. I don't think you'll automatically lose muscle. I think if people stay at a reasonably high level of, of in this case, we're talking specifically strength training, um, you, can, you can maintain muscle um, there is some 
some effect of aging, particularly advanced aging, but I, and I don't know specifically with this guy, but I would suspect by age 80, he's probably not training as much or as hard as he was even at age 67. So it, again, it is probably more of a, um, uh, in relation to the amount of activity, the amount of training you do, rather than the actual aging itself. And, and just typically what happens as people get older, um, they may have other health issues, they may have injuries or things that uh, impact their, the amount that they train. So uh, clearly there is some effect with aging. We see it with every system, but you can substantially reduce the, the downward curve uh, by staying active. Okay. All right, other questions? All right, that'll do it for today.